Number four, Managing for the Master, first quarter, 2023. John Pauline. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. We're beginning lesson four, Offerings for Jesus. It's in the quarter, Managing for the Master, Till He Comes. Dr. John Pauline is our moderator. Arthur is going to be offering our opening prayer. Our Divine Father, we thank you, Lord, for your blessings. We thank you, Lord, for the gift of the Sabbath, the gift of family and friends. And once more, as we start to have these Bible discussions, we are inviting your presence. We are asking you, Lord, to open our minds so that we may understand as we discuss. Help us, Lord, to be open to new insights and new truths and make us willing, Lord, to learn. And at the end of this exercise, may we be blessed and may our lives be uplifted. We thank all this in the loving name of the Sanctus as we pray. Amen. This is the fourth in a series on stewardship. And it's the broad central theme. How do you manage for the master? How do you manage the resources that God has given to each of us? And in the previous session, we talked about tithing principle and how that might impact Christians today. And I thought it might be helpful because in the chat right at the very end, Terrence Clark, who left a text that he thought was pertinent to our discussion and in looking it up, uh, it's very, very pertinent. So I thought I would share it with you as sort of a conclusion to the last session and a bridge toward the current one. And that's 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verses 13 and 14, where Paul says, Don't you know that those who work in the temple get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar? In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. So that's an interesting confirmation. I'm surprised it was not in the lesson that I could see, because that would very strongly make the point that the lesson was trying to make, that the equivalent of the Levites and the priesthood for the church would be those who serve as ministers and leaders of various local and wider entities. So thank you, Terrence. That was a helpful contribution. So going to the current lesson where it's about offerings for Jesus, the last session was on tithing, and this one suggests that beyond tithing, there's a second category, which the lesson calls offerings. And the first in the handout, number one, says it this way, the lesson brings out that tithes leaves us 90% of our income to use as we see fit. That is where generosity begins. Offerings beyond the tithe are a free will choice to be generous as God has been generous with us. A model for such offerings are the thank offerings, sin offerings, fellowship offerings that people brought to the temple. When we consider the magnitude of what God has done for us, we respond in kind. All right. There's a couple of texts that one of them came up in the chat last time and a couple more that I'd like to add that pertain to this and might be a good introduction to the topic. Deuteronomy chapter 12 is a text we looked at in the previous session. And notice verses 5 and 6. So Deuteronomy 12 and verses 5 and 6. But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes as his habitation to put his name there. You shall go there, bringing there your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and your donations, your votive gifts, your freewill offerings, and the firstlings of your herds and flocks. All right, so here is a series of offerings that were to be given to the temple once the temple was built. And tithes are included in there. And in addition to tithes, there are also, as my translation says, burnt offerings, sacrifices, tithes, special gifts, and what you have vowed to give, and free will offerings, etc. So there seems to be the tithe is part of a larger picture of giving, but it is a separate category as it is listed here. In that light, Arthur, in the previous chat toward the end, put in a text that has puzzled many people and I think is worthy of consideration in this context. So it was a good transition between these two lessons. So I thought we should bring it up now. 
And that's Deuteronomy 14, so just a couple pages over, and verses 28 and 29. Deuteronomy 14 and verses 28 and 29. Every third year you shall bring out the full tithe of your produce for that year and store it within your towns. The Levites, because they have no allotment or inheritance with you, as well as the resident aliens, the orphans, and the widows in your towns may come and eat their fill so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work that you undertake. All right, so I can see why this text was brought forward for a couple of reasons. First of all, unlike the storehouse principle that the temple would be the place, here it says store them in your towns locally. So that in a sense seems to contradict the storehouse principle. And then second of all, it suggests that the tithes are not just for the Levites, but are also for the aliens, fatherless, and widows, a concept that was also touched on in the previous session. What I do understand is that this text is considered a second tithe, so it's the equivalent of the offerings. You'll notice it says every three years. It's not the constant everyday kind of approach, but every third year there to do something else. And if you go to Leviticus 27 and verses 30 to 32, you may want to keep your finger in Deuteronomy 14, but Leviticus 27 also addresses the issue of tithe and uses a very interesting phrase in relation to it. Deuteronomy 27, 30 to 32. All the tithes from the land, whether the seed from the ground or the fruit from the tree, are the Lord's. They are holy to the Lord. If persons wish to redeem any of their tithes, they must add one-fifth to them. All tithes of herd and flock, every tenth one that passes under the shepherd's staff, shall be holy to the Lord. All right, you know, keep in mind the word tithe actually means a tenth. So you can read here 10% in both of these texts, if you will. But I think it's pointed out that here the tithe is called holy to the Lord. And so there's a special designation that you don't have in Deuteronomy 14. So holy to the Lord is the base tithe, the main tithe. And that is reserved totally for the work of the temple and the work of the priests. But in Deuteronomy 14, every third year, there's encouraged a second tithe, and this second tithe would be stored up locally if the temple's too far. So you don't have to make a special trip with this tithe, but it is rather to be stored nearby, and you can use it to help the poor, etc., help the Levites, and even throw a party <laughs> from time to time. So that would seem to be to, unless you assume contradiction. If we have the assumption the Bible doesn't contradict itself, the way to ease the apparent contradiction is this tithe is not called holy unto the Lord like the other one is. It's every third year instead of constantly, and it's shared more widely than just with the Levites. So it would seem to me that that's how to understand that. So really, Deuteronomy 14 is a text in that case that would be referring to the topic of this particular lesson, the offerings. Since Arthur is with us, I was wondering if he would want to make further comments since he's the one who brought this text to my attention. Issues concerning tithes are becoming a huge issue back in Africa. There are a lot of discussions on different platforms, and such verses are brought up just to say, why is the church not using the tithe to take care of the poor and the destitute? And another point that I think I should mention also is that there's been an argument to say in the Old Testament, and I'm guessing also in the New Testament, whenever there is reference to tithe, it has always been something to do with livestock, harvest, any of those items, and not necessarily money. Yeah. So now people start asking questions why we ended up adopting the tithing of money instead of maybe continuing with tithing of livestock, fruits, and all those things. Well, I appreciate that. I heard that the church has made attempts in the past to look at whether we are using tithes appropriately, uh, maybe looking for a biblical basis as to how the church should spend tithes and all that. Maybe trying to appreciate that if there are such conversations which happened in the past, I'm hoping they are continuing to happen somewhere in biblical research programs and etc. And maybe someone in Africa 
benefit to know that such discussions do happen and maybe well if they are they get opportunities almost like this where someone can frankly state out their concerns maybe will not get a satisfying answer as such but at least when someone has an opportunity to have their concerns addressed uh, it allays a lot of anxieties and, and, and issues so the last point was to the use to the preference of money instead of livestock and fruits and harvest thank you Arthur, I, I really appreciate you broadening our perspective because you are now reflecting a situation where questions maybe that we don't often think about in the Western world are also important and are honestly seeking to address the principles of scripture. And so I would point back to the previous session that we just had in which we talked about exegesis biblical theology, systematic theology, you see. And one way that people address those issues is to assume that the Bible is absolute, that what the Bible says is to be followed in detail, no questions asked. If the Bible says animals, then it's got to be animals. If the Bible says plants, then it's got to be plants, you see. And I would point out that when these texts were written in the books of Moses, the world was in the agricultural age. The primary task of most human beings was ensuring their survival by growing crops and taking care of animals. And so it was natural that if the purpose of the tithe was to feed the Levites, to bring the produce themselves. And so you'll see earlier in Deuteronomy 14, the idea you can bring the animals and the produce, or you can bring money. But if you bring the money, bring a little extra, <laughs> you see, so that the person who's converting the money into animals doesn't get shortchanged. Whenever there's a trade made, the middleman gets a cut, you see. So the Lord says, all right, if you're not going to bring your animals straight to the temple, then you can sell them or bring an equivalent, but add 20% so that those using the money at the temple, when they're buying animals back, don't end up getting shortchanged. So the allowance is there within these early scriptures for money to be the equivalent of tithe. And I think as we've been talking together in this group, if money's the equivalent of life, then the tithe is a portion of our life. We earned so much, whether it's animals or crops back then, or today what we earn in our teaching, in our working, in our driving truck, or whatever we do, we're giving a portion of our life in exchange for money, which represents that life. So yes, I think if these are questions that are being raised in other parts of the world, it's important to reread these texts, not as systematic theology text, read in the original context, understand that context, and then say, how does it apply today? And as we saw last time, there's not always a straight line between then and now. <laughs> uh, sometimes we have to do some wrestling and some reasoning along the way, moving from temple to church, uh, from priests to ministers, etc. It's a logical move, but it isn't a guaranteed move. It's not always that every detail of that is expressed in detail in the scriptures themselves. So I think it's important then to recognize that we ask different things of the Bible and not every statement in Bible should be taken at face value for today. It should be taken at face value for the time when it was written and understanding God's intent and the writer's intent for that time. That was maybe a long response, but I thought it was so important. I wanted to speak to it. Do you want to come back on that, Arthur? Yeah, I think for me, largely was when you introduced three or four ways of interpreting scripture. I, I think for me, that was the biggest foundation. And I, I appreciate that, like in these discussions, we are equipping everyone to have access to the same tools maybe a theologian would have who is trained. That one is important, especially for the average congregant, because if we are not aware that there are all these three or four ways of looking at scripture, most of the times I would bet that we are viewing scripture through the systematic theology lens. So that raises a lot of questions. But when you look at it broadly, at least you appreciate how originally it was used or how it was given. And then you would also understand why maybe we have borrowed some of the principles into our modern day. It may not be a perfect fit. But the principle is the same. 
ultimately. So I just appreciate that um, at least I've been able to be part of this discussion. And hopefully, whenever I have a similar discussion about typing, I'll be of help to someone. Thank you very much. Well, thank you. And I think we all have a tendency to read the Bible as if it were written to us personally. And that's not totally illegitimate at all, because as we read, the Holy Spirit is with us and may impress us with a turn of phrase that's uniquely for us. But when we as a church are studying the Bible together, we need to all be on the same page. We cannot all read it from our own perspective and assume that we'll find unity there. The unity will come in learning to see it in the original context and then make applications that are sound to the difference. I've often had Seventh-day Adventists ask questions about the book of Revelation as if it were written to them. And then they will say, yes, but Ellen White says this. Shouldn't that affect the way we interpret Revelation? And I'll say, well, keep in mind, the author of Revelation didn't know Ellen White. So whatever is written there is not referring to her writings. They came much, much later. God chose to give Revelation in 95 AD, not 1995. And therefore, it cannot be read as if it were written directly to us because God was sending it to another time and place with implications for us that we need to dig out. So anyway, yeah, people tend to read the Bible as if it was written to them personally, and that can lead to misinterpretation, misunderstanding. All right, number two in your handout. According to the author of the lesson, one out of every six verses in Matthew, Mark, and Luke is about money. All right, and that was a new thought to me. I actually am currently teaching a class on the theology of the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and which is what he's referring to here. And it doesn't just jump out at me that every sixth verse is on money in some form or another. That may be the case. That's intriguing, and I want to check that out more closely. But we'll take that as a given here from someone who's been studying this for a long time. So if that's the case, then it's pretty important, isn't it? So how we use our money demonstrates our priorities in life. So money becomes something worth talking about in spiritual context. So let's go to Matthew 6 and verses 31 to 34. And why don't we just read them one verse at a time? Matthew 6 and verse 31. Therefore, do not worry, saying, what will we eat? Or what will we drink? Or what will we wear? Right, so that's a pretty direct statement, isn't it? Something that affects our everyday lives. Don't worry about what you eat, what you drink, or what you wear, but don't you need those things to survive? You see, so Jesus is going right at the root of our survival. He's saying, don't worry about that. That's not to be the source of worry. I wonder how often we worry about those very things. Verse 32. For it is the Gentiles who strive for all these things. And indeed, your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. All right, so the reason for not worrying is that God knows what we need. And so it becomes an issue of trust, doesn't it? Verse 33. But strive first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. All right, so the principle here is put God first. If you put God ahead of your daily worries, then good things are going to happen. Verse 34. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring worries of its own. Today's trouble is enough for today. All right. So with this text before you, let me ask the practical question. What does it mean to you? Put the kingdom of God first. What does it mean to you? Don't worry about what you eat or drink or wear. How in practical terms can we actually make use of this? Henry. Well, I think that it will depend on the individual level, on what is my personal perspective. Because if I am well-fed and I have a good job and I have a good house, then my worries should be different than the one that doesn't have anything to eat, right? So I think that we need to see that comment of Jesus to whom he is talking to, to make the point of, okay, what is he addressing there? Or is he saying, don't worry about what to eat or don't worry about how to dress? Mm. I love the way you just put that together because there's a big contrast between our lives 
and the ones Jesus is talking to, isn't it? The exegesis to systematic theology gap is very clear there, the way that you phrased it. We tend to not worry about, you know, we may worry about what we're going to eat, but we're not worried about whether we're going to eat. If we have to, Taco Bell is around the corner, you know, if all things fail. So we don't really have to worry about some of these things. And most of us live within a couple of miles of a store that sells clothing, etc., for a fairly reasonable price, considering. So yeah, Jesus was talking to people who didn't always know where the next wheel was coming from and didn't know if they had sufficient clothing for the cold snap that was coming in that night. So it is a different context. Yeah, I appreciate that. All right, Iris. The interesting thing, however, is that regardless of income, human beings worry. <laughs> And if we allow our lives to be driven by fear, I think then we have sort of the sense of an existential aloneness, of being thrown into this world radically alone and there's really no one else looking out for me if you live your life from that kind of a perspective there is no end of things that could happen to you and i think that's the nature of fear that we almost augment the things that we dread even though their statistical likelihood of happening may be very low <laughs> But yeah, we know that things can go terribly wrong. I mean, as we are recording this, there are parents bemoaning that they lost a child due to a senseless shooting last week. They had no idea last weekend that this would be the reality that would happen to them. Now, should I therefore worry? Yeah. When I send off my child every morning to school, that this could also happen to my school child. And that's here where God's invite is, that he says, you know what? The number one reality is you are mine. You are my child. No matter what happens, I will be with you. There is nothing in this world that you will have to face alone. And if I live my life from the perspective I am God's beloved child. My father cares for me. And no matter what difficulty I encounter, I am not in this existential aloneness, but I face it with my heavenly father being on my side, wanting to show his goodness and the reality of his presence to me. I think then I am invited to live my life from a radically different perspective. And that is what I am seeing. And I know this is more the systematic theology approach, but that is what, as a 21st century Christian, what I read out of this text. Mm -hmm. Well, the question was a systematic theology question. What do we do with it today? So you're right on the point of the question. Okay, Livius. I see this as a orientation. I see orientation in this passage, and orientation is one from an inward orientation to an others, other-centered orientation. The first part is, what shall I eat? What shall I drink? What shall I wear? And the kingdom of God is an other-centered kingdom, other-centered principles. And so God's trying to reorient us to look out rather than in, and then maybe back to the principle of life is money. It's a give and take. You got to choose where you spend your energy. That's what I see here is this is an orientation. God wants us to reorient us in a direction. Very powerful comments. Very much to the point. Thank you. Rita. I go back to the first verse of chapter six there, and then the introduction to each of this. Christ is saying, be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. When you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do. Do not store up yourselves treasures on earth. Do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than these things? And is Christ saying here, you're too concerned about what you eat, what you drink, what you wear, because you want to impress other people. God's not interested in that. He'll look after you. You don't have to impress God. Don't try and impress humans because you'll only fall over. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Arthur. 
I come from Zimbabwe, and at a certain point in time, we went through a very harsh economic crisis. We used to be billionaires, trillionaires, whatever, at a certain point in time, but none of us could buy basics at that time. We had a note, Zimbabwean dollar note, of any value in trillions, if you'd say, and that note maybe would even hardly buy a loaf of bread. Hyperinflation, yeah. Yeah. So at that time also would have maybe preachers would come in the congregation to, I would like to look at is Psalm 37, verse 25, which says, I've been young and now I'm old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. I had issues with verses like that because apparently whoever is mentioning this verse in the congregation will be given a testimony during those harsh difficult times to say god has been taking care of me i've never had to go without a meal in a single day and maybe their point is this is evidence that i'm god's child so i cannot skip a meal because god will always ensure that i'm fed but now the challenge is not all of us were some of us would even skip a meal some of us would at times not have anything to eat and all those things and so at times i struggled to understand whether when we say these verses do not worry about what you eat or what you should wear in the context of where i come from would it mean that i'm saying i should not seek something better i should not seek to improve my situation i've moved to the uk right now my family is there to join me hopefully soon, because I'm looking for a better standard of living and all. So there's a sense in which these verses sometimes appear like we're saying you should not seek for something better. You should not seek for a better way of living. Be content in whatever situation. Well, I don't know whether I'm using my English correctly there, but I'm just saying maybe we have to be careful how we explain these verses to another person who is going through a very difficult time. Because to them, it might mean you are implying, like Psalm 37, that they are not God's child. That is why they are going through all those difficult issues. That's why they are missing their meal. But anyway, I think Jesus was trying to say God is in control. Things may get very, very tough, but God is in control. We have testimonies from people who were in the concentration camps, the worst situations imaginable. But for some reason, they managed to go through it. So I'm guessing that's what it means, that God is still going to find a way of taking care of you, but not meaning that it will be a meal, every meal, three times a day. Whatever arrangement God is going to make, he is promising that he will take care of us. Mm. Once again, you're stretching our perspective and bringing in contexts that are quite different from California, for example, where many of us live. And I really appreciate that. Once again, we tend to read the Bible as if it was written to us. And you have Deuteronomy 28, for example, where it says, you know, if you obey, all these good things will happen. If you disobey, all these bad things will happen. And those are national texts, not personal texts. And when you get to Psalms and Proverbs, the text that you have brought out, an interesting thing has happened in Scripture. And that is, first of all, the writers of Psalms and Proverbs have individualized Deuteronomy. And instead of, if the nation obeys, it will prosper. If the nation disobeys, it will come to ruin. The saying is, if the believer is faithful, they will be wealthy. And anybody who's an unbeliever will come to ruin. Well, we know from life experience that that isn't always true. So what the psalmist and the proverbist (laughs) are doing is individualizing the covenant. And in an absolute sense, you can't do that because we know that not every faithful person gets their meal every time. And we know that not every rapscallion becomes poor. We know that from experience. And within that part of the Bible is the corrective, the story of Job. Because you see, the story of Job is one where his friends are reading the Bible in this absolute way and saying, Job, there's something wrong with you. Look at the way you're suffering. You must have done some really bad things because that wouldn't be happening if you were faithful. You know, Proverbs tells me (laughs) if you were faithful, it wouldn't be happening. So right within scripture is the corrective to an extreme position. The way that I handle that is to say, read Proverbs with the caveat all other things being equal. All other things being equal, the righteous will do well and the wicked will come to ruin. But in this life, things are often not equal. Tragedies come. People come and steal. Terrible things happen. Accidents happen. In this life, 
it's not always equal. And so Proverbs is stating a principle that all other things being equal will work out in people's lives. It's better to be faithful than not, because those who are faithful tend to have better outcomes, but they don't always, because life isn't fair. So uh, thank you. I've been blabbering here quite a bit, but that shows how your questions are really trying to focus everything we know about scripture on real life concerns and situations of fellow believers. So thank you for raising those issues. All right, Michael. You've already addressed pretty much what I was going to comment on, and that is that life in many respects just simply isn't fair. Think of that book that was written several years ago, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? Because they do. And that doesn't mean that God is uncaring, but we live in a world in which some awful, terrible things happen. Iris mentioned. Families who sent their children off to school believing they'd be seeing them at the end of the day and they'll never see them again. Why do those kinds of things happen? Because there's real evil in the world as well. And I don't have any magic answers, but to say that I still have to trust in God's mercy and God's compassion that somehow or other this will all work out. But at the moment that it's happening, it's very difficult to do that. It's very difficult to say, oh, well, after all, this is going to be all balance out someday. And that's not much of a solace to the parent who's lost a child or the people of Ukraine, who in January this year had a very high standard of living, a, a wonderful country, it was considered probably the breadbasket of Europe, Western Europe. And look what's happened to it now. Why do those things happen? Because there's real evil in the world. In the long run, what I think I have to do is trust in God's providence that somehow or other, this will all balance out and work out. Mm, very helpful. Thank you. Debbie. Yes, thank you. Certainly, I've not been through the extenuating circumstances that some of you have been through and those are going through in this day and age. And at the same time, in my own experience, I'm finding that in relation to what we're talking about in this giving, a lot of it depends on my mindset, whether I have a mindset of scarcity or a mindset of abundance. And Recently, I was reading Psalm 23, and the verse that stood out to me just kind of hit me was, my cup overflows. It's not in the future. It's not in the past. It is in the moment. My cup overflows. And I had to really think about that in terms of this concept of abundance and how God is an abundant God in the moment. Now, whether it's all-inclusive, I don't think so, because there are days when people do starve. But having that perspective that my God is the God of abundance has radically changed my thinking and how I relate to my everyday situations. Thank you. So let's go to 2 Corinthians 9, and let's take a look at verses 1 to 5. And the lesson was actually pointing us to verses 6 and 7. So maybe we should read those first, 2 Corinthians 9, 6 and 7. But the context is really, really interesting. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 and 7. The point is this, the one who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And the one who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each of you must give as you have made up your mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. The lesson brought this in so we'd see a couple of things. One is what you reap you sow. So a giving spirit may well enhance one's own life as well as that of others. But secondly, it says that God loves a cheerful giver. In other words, that what God really wants is your heart. And the giving is an outward representation of what is in the heart. Now, what's fascinating here is the first five verses. This is a very human situation, and I'm kind of tickled the way Paul handled it. Now, it is not necessary for me to write to you about the ministry to the saints, for I know your eagerness, which is the subject of my boasting about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers in order that our boasting about you may not prove to have been empty in this case, so that you may be ready, as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated, to say nothing of you, in this undertaking. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for this bountiful gift that you have promised 
so that it may be ready as a voluntary gift and not as an extortion. All right. The point for bringing this text in for the lesson is the idea that free additional giving is encouraged in scripture, that beyond the ties, one can decide to give further and that this can be very, very helpful to God's cause. Now, the humor in here is evidently Paul visited Achaia, which is Athens and Corinth, and they were all excited to help with his ministry project back in Jerusalem to bring a big offering that would help Paul to unify the church. So it was a really major thing that Paul was doing here. And so they said, yeah, we will help. We'll do this, that, and the other thing. And Paul's been going around northern Greece bragging about what they're doing in Corinth. And now, as he's about to come back to Corinth and bring some of these northern Greeks down with him to bring the offering to Jerusalem, he's worried that maybe the Corinthians have forgotten their pledge. And when he gets there, he's going to be embarrassed, and they're going to be embarrassed that what they promised isn't going to happen. So it's kind of a bit of humor in here. It's very practical. It's amazing the things that get into scripture from really practical situations. Paul is basically saying, you know, you freely offered to do this. I'm going to send some people down to help you implement your pledge. (laughs) So he says, we'll send some folk down so that when I get there, everyone will be happy with the results. So I don't know to what degree we would apply that to today's world, but it was an interesting situation that Paul said, we will send some encouragement to you to actually fulfill your pledge so that we aren't both embarrassed when the Macedonians show up at your door expecting you to do as much as they did. So we've been boasting about you. Other people are pledging because of your pledge. Sure would be embarrassing if you don't end up following through. So a fascinating text, but it gave Paul the opportunity to tell us a basic principle, and that is that more than the gift, it's the intent, it's the choice that uh, really, really matters. All right, moving to number three, we have a couple of texts, Deuteronomy 16, 16 and 17, and Psalm 116, 12 to 14. And in these texts, there are two criteria that appear for giving. Let's start with Deuteronomy 16. Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, at the festival of unleavened bread, at the festival of weeks, and at the festival of booths. They shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. All shall give as they are able, according to the blessing of the Lord your God that he has given you. All right, so the criterion here in this text is that when they come to the temple, People should give offerings as they are able. So one criterion is what you are able to give. But then Psalm 116 gives a different criterion. What shall I return to the Lord for all his bounty to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. It's the same context as Deuteronomy 16. It's when they go to the temple, what are they to do? But in Deuteronomy 16, it says you give as you're able to give. And in Psalm 116, it says give according to what God has done for you. So the second criterion, I think, is very important to our group here. It's the idea that how one handles money in relation to offerings is related to the picture of God. Do you see God as someone who's sort of a harsh creditor exacting and saying, all right, give me back what belongs to me? Or do you see God as someone who is just giving and giving and giving and you become more and more like that? As you worship such a God, you become more like that God and more generous, etc. And I think that that is a critical piece of this whole idea of offerings is that we do it with one eye on who God is and what he has done for us. Bobby Joe, I'm reminded of the story in the New Testament of how the believers were selling property and bringing the proceeds of those properties to the disciples. And those funds were being used to support the new believers that were being added to the church. And in that description is a unique story, Ananias and Sapphira. Right. Mm -hmm. And the Bible makes it clear that they had property. 
they sold it. And then together they decided that they would be deceptive about the sales price. And it goes to the root of the integrity that object is yours, whatever you've decided to give. It's yours. It belongs to you. You have a choice to do with it what you wish. They could have come to the disciples and said, we had this property. We decided to give 20% of it for the support of the believers or 50% or 5%. It belonged to them. But what they were trying to do was pretend as though they were doing as all the others were doing giving and support. And that deception, God really marked as something that he needed to correct in the early church. And I thought that was very interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that raises the question that we may want to pursue briefly. Why is that story in the Bible? What's going on there? What's the point that God is making? We'll leave that suspended for the moment. Sherry? As I'm listening, I'm thinking that there are so many ways to give other than money. It's a very wide open area, giving is, and it's very individual. It depends on what natural gifts we have, what interests we have, what we're aware of as per needs. And one way you're all giving is through what we're doing today. So many people are being blessed and we hear from so many around the world because you're willing to take this time, all of you, and be part of something that is blessing others. So it's not just money that we're talking about. And I think that it's important not to stifle people's opportunity to be creative and find ways to give. Because sometimes in our eagerness that we make sure that somebody else is giving all they can, then we become directive about it. And that ruins the whole gift. And I think to leave people free to be creative and find the ways and the amounts that they have and wish to give back to God with their whole heart and enjoy, I think it's important to give people that grace to make their own decisions. And then to observe and see the beauty of what they come up with in the ways they give of their life and their love to others. And in a sense, isn't that the point of the Ananias and Sapphira story? That God is trying to tell us, I'm not interested in grudging gifts. I'm not interested in extracted gifts. As has been said already, if they had chosen to give 20% of the house, that would have been fine. It would have been greatly appreciated. But it's in trying to hold back something that they were claiming to do, that, that selfish interest, etc. God is looking for the heart, as we said before. And as you just brought out, Sherry, the whole point of these offerings is that it comes from the heart and that's directed toward God. All right, Michael. I had the privilege for several years to be part of a mentoring and tutoring program, which is a ministry of the university church in Loma Linda. It was this tutoring mentoring program for inner city kids in San Bernardino. And I was impressed by the different tutors who volunteered their time. I remember one particular a physician who was an oncologist, and he gave up quite a bit of his time, professional time, in order to tutor a young boy who was having a difficult time in high school. And part of that program is we would take kids to places like the Science Center in Los Angeles by the Coliseum. And these were kids who had never been outside the city of San Bernardino. And to show them there's a great big world out there and try to inculcate them that if you want to get out of this place called San Bernardino and make something yourself, education is the key. And it was a very successful program. I am, of course, I'm now living in Tennessee. I don't have any part of it anymore. But I was just blessed to be a part of this program. And I impressed with the attitude of the people who were willing to give up their time to be tutors to these children. Mm. Thank you. Go ahead, Henry. As Sherry was mentioning, I think so many times we read these verses to the people that Jesus was talking to. He makes reference to riches. He doesn't make reference to money. The verse there says... Uh, you cannot serve two lords, right? You cannot serve God or mammon. And we try to equate that with money. I don't think that was the issue that he was trying to address. And typically, we keep bringing, when we talk about 
stewardship and offerings. We keep talking about money and bringing them with a good heart and being the cheerful giver. And we start talking always with that emphasis. But I wonder why we don't use verses like Isaiah 1.13 when God says, stop bringing me offerings. That's the point that we always using God asking for money, but we don't use the verses when God says, you know what? Stop bringing me offerings. When you are bringing them meaningless, when you are trying to impress me, that's not what I want. I don't even want 1% of your money if you are bringing it this way or 100%. That's not the point. And what Hosea says is, all that I want from you is mercy. I don't want sacrifices. I want you to get to know me. And in Luke, Jesus tells his story about the rich putting their gifts in the temple treasury. And there was a poor lady bringing all that she had. And we use that as an excuse as well, as Arthur was mentioning, to say, you see, you can give everything. And I don't think Jesus was talking about money again. He was talking about the intentionality, the why we do things What are we trying to achieve? Who are we trying to impress? And sadly, typically, always considering this to be when you are giving your one-tenth or all that you have, and if you are concerned about how are you going to be living, we have the tendency to consider that what God is asking us is to get off our wallet, give all of the money, and put it in there and forget about us. But what he is actually asking us is, where is your heart? Are you showing mercy with this? Are you trying to help somebody with this? Or are you trying to gain something for you? Well said. Thank you. Arthur? I wasn't sure whether to even share my experiences. Whenever we've had the topic of stewardship, the first thing that we've always thought about is, here we go, we are going to talk about money again. And it has always happened many, many times that we have seminars after seminars. And most of the times it's always clear that whenever there's that seminar, it has to be about the money. I've witnessed situations where maybe local churches are given goals, goals as in monetary goals in terms of tithes. Maybe they are given a certain amount of money that that they are supposed to reach in giving as a local church in tithe as well as in offerings. Then maybe after the quarter, there's a meeting to, to just check whether money is to reach that goal. I'm also trying to reflect on what would be the motivation for the saints when they're trying to reach that particular goal in that quarter, in that three months or so. I think Henry really put it down well for me to say, I wish we had those verses where God is saying, I do not need your money because honestly, he doesn't. This discipline of tithing and offerings is benefiting us. It is a tool that God is using in which he's at least trying to help us to experience thinking about others first before we think about ourselves. So if it becomes something that we feel like we're being compelled to do, as if God is just standing over our shoulder, demanding tithe from our pockets or demanding offerings, we lose the whole plot. We may return the tithes grudgingly because for me, all the time, whenever the reports come, there's always a higher amount of returns in tithes and very low amounts of returns in offerings because apparently people are always afraid of God with the tithe because no one can mess around with tithe because God might do something to you. So they will never touch tithe. But with offering, well, we're told you can give whatever your heart says you should give. But with tithe, no, you cannot touch it because Malachi says there are cases. So always when the reports come out, you find tithe is high and offerings are low. But I think saints should be encouraged. So lastly, I was also wondering when Paul was talking about when the Macedonians come, I'm hoping that whatever report I'm saying about you, they'll find evidence of that report. And I was trying to say, how would the local congregation have taken it? Was it something that they found encouraging? Was it something like the goals maybe that I've experienced with? We're saying at the end of the quarter, we have to reach about this amount of money. That's what I was thinking in my head. Thank you very much. Thank you, Arthur. I was thinking along similar lines. Was that perhaps not Paul's best moment where he maybe had some reason to think that they were backing off on their pledge and now that would be tough to explain to the Macedonian believers, etc. So, yeah, you see Paul 
addressing almost in a humorous way, perhaps. You know, maybe if we put a little smiley face next to Paul's comment, it might be more appropriate (laughs) to understand. Because I can't imagine Paul now, after talking about God loves a cheerful giver, and then hammering them in that same context. Alyssa? I think Paul was being pragmatically strategic in what he was saying there. So I thought it was great. Mm -hmm. But we're talking about offerings and something that several universities, our Adventist universities, have instituted. Students may not be able to bring money, but they can give service. And so within our curriculum, we have places for them to serve. And so they go out and they tutor and they volunteer and they do all of these things as part of a class. So I feel like, as Arthur was saying, it's not all about money, but it's about giving. And so here the students go out and give. And several years ago, we had accreditation team come for our evaluation. And I happened to be part of the service learning. We call it service learning program. And these educators from other secular universities or private universities, but not Adventist universities, said to me, I really love what your students are doing. You have a marvelous program here. We ought to have one like this as well. And so I think we give opportunities in different ways. I see God as being a very extravagant giver. And I think to myself, I wish I could be that extravagant. Maybe not with money, but with giving. And I don't want to embarrass anybody here, but amongst our people at Pine Knoll, I can tell you, we have extravagant givers. Well, I appreciate the point that you made up because it it all comes back to God, doesn't it? That the generosity of God becomes the motivating factor in the giving of all types that people do. I think one of the challenges most of us don't realize how generous God is. And a little trick that a preacher shared with me maybe 50 years ago that has really helped a lot, and it's almost childish in a way, but I'll share it anyway. And that's the idea of making a list every day of 10 things that you're thankful for and be very, very practical. I thank you, Lord, for the air. You know, if I held my breath too long, it would be pretty miserable. (laughs) So thank you, Lord, for the air. Thank you, Lord, for the cat. Thank you, Lord, for the color of the carpet. You know, as I said, it can be almost childish in a way. But the amazing thing is when you stop to think about it, they're all true. And if you go to any page in the dictionary, you can find at least a dozen things that you're thankful to God for, but maybe have never thanked him for. Apes, apples apricots. There you go. Right down the page on the dictionary, things that we've never thanked God before, and yet every one of them is a gift from God. And so as we train ourselves to be more God-conscious, the generosity in return will be easy to come by. It won't need to be forced. Sherry? I was just thinking about Paul again and thinking he was a person like we are, even if he loved God, doesn't mean he didn't make mistakes. And I personally feel that was a mistake. I would have been offended. And I don't think that we need to feel that everything that's in the Bible is an encouragement to do it just that way. It just says that's the way it happened. That's what he said. That's what he did. It doesn't mean it was right. So I don't think we have to take that as an encouragement to whip up people to make sure that they give the right amount. That would be very offensive to me. I know it wouldn't be offensive to some others. But I think that just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean that's the correct way to do it. I'm sure Paul was a good person, but we all try to be good and still make mistakes. And again, so often people have been abused over somebody's reading of scripture, you know, as to them directly. Paul did that, therefore I need to do that. When I'm asking for offerings, I'm going to send people coming to your door and I want that offering to be ready. You know, we feel justified by Scripture in doing that. To be sensitive, as I think you are doing, Sherry, to the original situation and the frailties of those involved may save us from misusing Scriptures many, many times over. Thank you. All right, we're just about out of time. Let me just review a couple things that are in your handout, because I think we've kind of covered most of them in one form or another. But in number four, 
it mentions that tithes and offerings were a central part of Israel's worship and lists a number of texts that we could have written. And if we had more time, I'd have encouraged you to ponder the question, how do you apply the idea that the offerings were always in the temple? How would you apply that today? And in so doing that, you know, when you have online giving today, very frequently, how would you apply that concept in an online giving age? But we don't have time to pursue that now. The widow's might has been mentioned, showing the importance of the heart. Ananias and Sapphira have been mentioned as well. One additional one that's in the lesson is the story of Cornelius. And the story of Cornelius is one where Cornelius has been giving for some time as a Roman, as a Roman soldier. And that's kind of an amazing thing. He was pro-Judaism in his context. God saw the heart behind his giving and came and gave him a direct revelation, a pagan soldier with Jewish leanings. Pretty awesome story. The heart of Cornelius was generating the gifts, but God, seeing beyond the gifts, saw the heart and said, he's a model, and I will give him more and much more. As we draw toward a close, I'd like you to go to number eight. And number eight is basically saying something interesting here, I think. Secular economists have noticed that the more super wealthy families give, the more their family wealth tends to increase over the generations. Now, this is a fascinating concept. And the illustration in an article that I read was the Rockefellers and the Vanderbilts. In the late 19th century, the two richest people in the world were John D. Rockefeller and Cornelius Vanderbilt. And both are names that you're familiar with. Vanderbilt was a rather crotchety fellow who basically gave grudgingly a small gift to his wife's church no doubt, to keep peace in the family. And when he died, he left a million dollars out of his $200 million fortune to found Vanderbilt University. So he gave very, very small amounts, perhaps fairly grudgingly, most of it after he no longer could use it anyway. And people have noted that the Vanderbilt fortune has basically dissipated through the decades. Rockefeller, on the other hand, was a Bible teacher in the Riverside Church in New York City and taught his kids that the money that God had given them was a gift to the world and that they were to be active. He had his kids involved in giving and making decisions where it would be given and following up to make sure that those monies were making the difference that they were supposed to be. The Rockefeller fortune today is enormous. The descendants of the family have multiplied millions of dollars, far more than John D. had. And so the author was explaining that the spirit of giving, when the second generation receives this inheritance and blows it on themselves, it quickly is gone. Whereas when the second generation receives it as a responsibility to the world, they not only continue giving, but they work hard to increase the fortune. And so secular economists have said, when the Bible says, given it will be given to you, it's not just an arbitrary act on God's part, it's consequences of behavior. It actually works that way. Anyway, the less super wealthy families give, the faster the family wealth disappears. Why do you think that would be the case? Neil? Two others involved in that are J.C. Penney and Colgate. Yeah. Both of those organizations, they started out as tithe givers. Hmm. So why? Why does this seem to ripple through the generations? Any thoughts beyond what's already been offered? Okay. Gail, go ahead. I'm just wondering whether, I'm not exactly sure why, but I can't help but think of the verse that says, cast your bread upon the waters and many days it will come back to you. So there's just something about being generous that feeds on itself, I think. Good thoughts. Thank you. Iris? I think the idea of an abundant life appeals to most people, and we like that. We would love to embrace that. But I think what you are alluding to here is if we want to have an abundant life and thrive, then we need to embrace a growth mindset and a mindset of generosity. That is what God has 
demonstrated to us through the life of Jesus. He has met us in a posture of generosity. And I think we are invited to echo that in our hearts and in our minds and to live from that perspective. Yeah, giving, extending that generosity to others. And when that becomes a life motto, an orientation in life, rather than a legal thing, a tit for tat a type of, okay, now I have to give back to God, but an expression of how God has been generous to us as a result, we want to be generous to others. I think then abundance happens as a result of that mindset. Thank you. Henry? I will submit the idea that we should be also careful when making these references that giving or these wealthy families that give prosper more and giving has some sort of rule or God-driven law that will equate on, on having enough. Because I think, again, it doesn't relate to, it doesn't talk about money or riches or how well you are. As a matter of fact, that poor woman on the story of Jesus in Luke, she was poor. She was very generous, but that did not make her wealthier. That did not probably make her needs to be met. That's what she was described as poor. I think that the intention of generosity that God has invited us to approach is be generous because that's the way that I am. That's the way that we should be, regardless if you will end up well or not. Give because this is how the kingdom of God is. When Jesus was here among us, he wasn't given in order to show how much he had. He was given because God has always been giving. And that's what he is inviting. So equating the good outcomes, if you do this or do do that, makes human beings that are so fragile think, as Arthur was mentioning before, that if I am not harvesting, then something's wrong with me or something is not working well. I think that when God started giving on creation time, he didn't do it in order to become wealthier. That's the nature of love. That's the nature of who God is. And that's the nature that he expects for us to achieve because we want to, not because what we are going to get out of it. Yeah. And I think your comments are pointing to a tension that we've observed here. And the tension is on the one hand that the ways of God are better ways. So it should not surprise us if people who follow God's principles end up better off on the whole, on the whole. On the other hand, the other side of this dilemma is the fact that things are not always equal in this world. And so to point out, as you said, the principle that God's ways are better doesn't mean that the outcome will be obvious in every case and that we should not therefore be accusing somebody who got poor, that they must not have been giving and so on. That's the Job fallacy that the scripture also points out. So yeah, we have a certain tension here that it does seem to be a case that non-believers are noticing that the giving principle seems to have more often than not uh, very positive results, but at the same time, not using that as an absolute. Okay, Michael. I am impressed with missionary work in that nobody becomes a missionary in order to make a lot of money. And the idea that you're going to pack up everything, your wife, and maybe your kids, you're going to go off to someplace like India, no matter how well you prepare for the differences in culture, that is really a significant impact upon the lives of you. And if you have any children, your children as well. It's not you're going to spend the six weeks there. You may spend 30, 40 years there. And that takes an immense commitment, an immense love of fellow man, which is really what Christ was talking about. Love one another. Thank you, Michael. Our time is up. So Livius and Julie, these will be kind of final words for us. Maybe just to echo what Henry was saying. Love is the law of the universe. I believe Ellen White makes a statement like that. But this idea of giving generates, creates life. And if you think about 
a coral reef, every member of that coral reef gives of itself to the next member. And look how beautiful coral reefs are. If we decide to hoard our carbon dioxide, what happens to us, right? Instead of giving it to the trees that take it and convert it and give us back oxygen, we die. We cease to, we just can't exist in isolation. So I think love is the law of life and giving is the principle that that's based on. Thank you. Julie? Giving, I think initially at least takes self-discipline. And there's a lot of evidence that people that have self-discipline have a lot more positive things happen in their lives. Secondly, I think the well-kept secret is that giving is fun and that whether or not we get some benefit or we become more successful or our children become more successful, it's still worth it. And there was a third point. Oh, the other one was the thing that Jacob said to Esau, take my gift for I have all. And when we have the attitude that we have all, It's a totally opposite of the person that always wants more and spends and uses more. And when we have that attitude of having all, our life is really worthwhile, no matter what we have or what we lose. So I think that's all part of what giving does to us. Couldn't have asked for a better last word. Thank you so much. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you once again, handling a topic which is fraught with challenges. So often people have been abused over offerings and things like that. At the same time, there's so much blessing involved in being generous as you have been generous with us. So I thank you, Lord, for being with us in this discussion, for opening our minds to fresh perspectives and seeking to balance all that we have come to understand. We thank you for your presence at this time and invite you to continue with us in the week to come. For Jesus' sake, amen.